Philippians 4. We continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. This morning we find ourselves in verses 8 and 9. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. If you are using the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 982. title of our sermon this morning is Practice These Things. And our keywords for worshipers and training are Think, Practice, and Peace. Now, I really, one of the things I really love to do is to learn. And I'm so thankful to live in 2018 and have access to to books, to videos, to audio, to podcasts, to anything and everything of value that can be found on the internet. It is absolutely incredible what is available to us today. But not only do we have access to all of this incredible information God has created us with the ability to receive and to process all of this information in such a way that nobody's really aware of just how capable we are. Study after study is done, and the more we learn, the more we realize just how incredible God has made us. There are entire disciplines of science that study the the human brain and the capacity to learn. It's fascinating to read some of this stuff. Did you know that all of our brains have 12 to 14 billion cells in them. And each of those cells sends out thousands of connecting tendrils so that that one single cell may be connected with 10,000 neighboring cells, and then those connect out from there. It's astonishing. It is, pun intended, it is mind-blowing. It's far more complex. It is far more sophisticated than the most sophisticated computer system. The power that is generated by the human mind is said to be significant enough that it could power one human brain, it could power the, entire, the entirety of New York City. There is more electronic equivalent in one human brain than all the radio and television stations in the entire world combined. So when you combine all that is available to us in an instant with the capacity and the power of the human mind to to learn and process, we should be amazed and we should be so thankful. We should be all the more diligent to continue growing and learning in every way that we can. What's amazing is that the human brain can do what no computer is capable of. I've been reading a lot of J.R.R. Tolkien lately, and I'm amazed by this man who has created, he's imagined this entire universe of creatures and ethical codes and various languages, and, and he's created a universe out of his mind. The imagination to do this is incredible. My, uh, my favorite piece of music is uh, Sergei Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 3. Since I was a young boy, I've listened to it over and over and over again. And every time there's some point in listening to it that I stop and I'm utterly amazed at the composition. The fact that Rachmaninoff wrote it, but equally as impressive, is that there are people alive who can even play it. It's one of the most difficult pieces of music to play on the piano that's ever been written. It's incredible, but, but far more incredible than being able to read a lot of books or imagine and write up a mythical universe or to write and play a difficult piano concerto is the possibility of possessing a mind that contemplates and knows the Lord Jesus Christ through the mystery and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes that Christians 
have the mind of Christ. And, and He calls us to renew those minds day by day by day in the Lord Jesus Christ. No computer can do that. No computer can think the thoughts of God. No computer can know the joy, the peace, the satisfaction, the hope, the love, the mercy, the grace of God. But we have that capacity. God has given us that capacity in our minds. And in fact, our our minds were created primarily for that purpose. But this is a challenging thought for many of us because in our flesh, in our brokenness as human beings, we, we fall far short of the mind of Christ so often. More than we are willing to admit, we're, we aren't thinking the thoughts of God so frequently. John Milton wrote in, in Paradise Lost, he wrote, A mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. And that is the experience of every one of us, isn't it? So it's imperative that we we take the Proverbs to heart that tell us to keep your heart with all vigilance for for from it flow the springs of life. Remember the great command of God? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with with all of your soul, and with all of your, your strength, with all of your mind. With all of your mind. Jesus actually added mind to the command from that which God inspired in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And and so the Lord is demanding that all of us, everything about us, to include our minds, that they be submitted to Christ. And this is what Paul is pointing us to this morning as we look at our text. These two verses in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. So let's read those together. Paul writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Well, Paul is on to his second finally in the book. Remember in chapter 3 and verse 1, he said, finally, and like a good preacher, he kept going on after he said finally. And so he says, finally again, which is closer, not quite to the very end yet, but in all seriousness, you might remember from chapter 3, what he's doing here is he's offering a transition. He's saying something like, so then, or in light of all of that, we move on in our text. So this is not a statement where he's saying in conclusion, although we're very close to the end here. So, so Paul gives us here, he gives us six virtues, six qualities for us to look at. He calls us to look at what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable. These are all Good virtues, and we're going to look at each one of them, but it's worth noting that these were actually virtues that were very much a part of the Greco-Roman culture itself. So Paul is a master of of communicating with the audience in such a way that they can understand what what he's saying in their context. And so he's using the language of Philippi to explain something here of godliness. 
These were all things that were being written about uh, by their moral philosophers. And, and even today, you can go back and read all the works that, that Paul would have been very familiar with, and he put to use in the service of Christianity. In other words, he's taking back from the culture what they had taken away from the Christian worldview, and he's using that to explain to them what God requires of them. This is Paul doing what he wrote back in chapter 2, pressing in all the more in how to live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation to shine light into a dark world. He was a master evangelist. And so here we see him getting to the Philippians in this letter to set their minds on the right things, to get all of those cell connections working to develop the mind of Christ. So what we're going to do briefly, we're going to consider each of these six virtues, and then we'll look at the two imperatives that Paul gives that flow from these things. So what are they? What are we to do with them? What are these six virtues? We see them all in verse 8 there. These six virtues are broad. They are, they are vague enough in one sense for us to readily conclude that Paul is not giving us hard and fast rules, but he's giving us principles through which to filter the things of life. This is important because often our tendency is to say, just, just give me the list. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what not to do. And if I can check off the list, then everything's going to be fine. But it's so seldom that the Lord does that in the Bible, isn't it? Instead, we get, we get bigger principles to work through. And that's more difficult. Howard Hendricks wrote, rules are many, principles are few. Rules change, but principles never do. And that's a, that's a good axiom for us to remember that's helpful, that we have principles in Scripture. And so when we encounter the things of life, we need to work through the application of those principles. And we have those principles here before us this morning. So the first one is whatever is true. Truth is of utmost importance to the Christian. Truth-telling and truth believing, no matter what the, may, the cost may be, it is very important. This is tied to God's law, the ninth commandment, that we not bear false witness, that we not lie, that we, that we consider the implied opposite in that law, and that we propagate and believe the truth. We are exhorted to have integrity, to have uprightness, to oppose hypocrisy, to oppose insincerity, to oppose all moral falsehoods. Our words should not contradict the reality of our hearts. Our deeds should not contradict the reality of our mouths. The whole person, everything about us as God's people, should conform to and be consistent with the truth. This is the standard of the principle that we strive for as Christians as we are being sanctified. And as with all of these virtues... You know right away, as much as I do, that all of us fall short of this. We'll be weak in our fulfillment. We will, we will look at the perfect standard of all truth, who is Christ, and we will see how far short we fall. He is all truth. His gospel is truth. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 about the word of truth, the gospel. And Jesus calls the word of God truth in, in John 17. And, and so all truth is God's truth even if it's not recorded in the Bible. That's an important thing for us to remember. Because there are very true things that we don't learn about in Scripture, but just because they're not in the Bible doesn't mean that they're not true or that they don't belong to God. For example, the mathematical formula 
And I realize it's a very simple formula, but bear with me. This is as good as I get with mathematical formulas. To figure out the area of a triangle. That's not recorded in Scripture, but that doesn't make it any less true, and it doesn't mean that its truth exists outside of God. No, God created the triangle, and God created the formula, the means by which to find its area and all the angles and measurements that it takes to get there. That's truth. Secondly, he calls us to whatever is honorable. This is persons or things that deserve respect and dignity and reverence. The Bible uses this word in numerous ways in the Old Covenant referring to the temple, to the law, to the Sabbath. Uh, in the New Covenant, we see it in reference to deacons, to, uh, to older men and women. The idea is that of, of loftier things, things that are opposite of what is ignoble or vulgar. So he calls us to whatever is honorable. Third, he calls us to whatever is just. Christians care about justice. Christians care about not just any justice, but about true justice. About justice that is based on the principles of Scripture. That which is just, or that which is right, is defined by God's character. But there's an action that takes place in light of God's character, and our being His people. And it's the action that Paul has in mind here specifically. He's talking about justice that that recognizes that all people everywhere are created in the image of God, both inside and outside of the womb. All people should be shown love and mercy and compassion, and all people are in need of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. No one is without that great need. True justice is justice that doesn't favor one person or one group of people over others in terms of rights in terms of how we treat them. True justice is fair and responsible in rendering the law, even if that sometimes means we don't get the outcome that we want, or it's, it's opposed to our desired ends. Fourthly, Paul calls us to whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. He's talking about things that are morally clean and undefiled. In other words, things that are pleasing to God. They could rightly be considered Godly or holy, not morally defiled or, or debased. It is, it is something that we would be... Uh, is there there's something that we might be embarrassed about if, if people in our, our church knew about them going on in our lives? At the very least, that's an indication that whatever it is may not be pure. Is, is there something that we, that we hide from our spouse? Well, we need to stop and ask, Why? What is, what is the nature of this, that if a certain person knew about it, I would be embarrassed or I would be ashamed? This, is, this isn't limited to, to sexual purity, but it includes all areas of moral purity, the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we act. Fifth, he points us to whatever is lovely. This is something that is winsome. This is something that is attractive. It is sweet or gracious or, or generous. There are many facets to this, some, this one. There, it, it's something that's, that maybe we can describe as, as heartwarming. It offers a reward. It produces joy. It also speaks to temperance. The idea that there's a, a modest disposition that isn't given over to extremes. Now, if you think about Greco-Roman culture as he's writing this, this is actually something that is very much based on 
what Aristotle called the doctrine of the mean. The idea was that you can take any aspect of humanity and look at its extremes in excess uh, or deficiency, and the goal there was to aim for the middle road, to, to find the mean between the two. So Paul's way of getting there would be very different, but again, the principle is very much tied to the surrounding culture. But I I don't want to overlook another aspect of this that Christians often forget or, or downplay. He's very much concerned here with our recognizing that this isn't just what's morally lovely. That is very much a part of this, but it's also what's aesthetically lovely. All of creation... All of the beauty of creation, nature, music, art, food, looking at a sunset of the summer sun, listening to a Rachmaninoff piano concerto, eating a perfectly cooked steak with a lobster tail, caring for the poor and powerless, planting a tree, painting a fence, mowing your elderly neighbor's grass, all of these things are beautiful. Whatever is lovely. And six, Paul calls us to whatever is commendable. Some, something that is of good repute. Something that is worthy of praise. Something that deserves our attention. Another way to say it is of good report. It's something you'd write home about in our more modern vernacular. There are things that deserve our attention. There are things that deserve our applause. That's what Paul is pointing to here. More specifically, as it applies to people, it's behavior, actions, thoughts, words that can be spoken highly of others. It's all beyond or above reproach. And so Paul gives us these six virtues, and then he gives a sort of summary to wrap them all together, and he includes anything he missed. When he writes this, he says, if there is any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise. So I've got these six things, but let's wrap it all. Anything at all that's excellent. Anything at all that is worthy of praise. Don't leave any of that out. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? He he gives us these things, but what do we do with it? Well, he addresses that at the end of verse 8. And this is our, our second point here this morning. Is that we must use our minds to contemplate the things of God. Paul has given us a beautiful masterpiece here describing how Christians ought to think. How ought we to use our minds? How ought we to employ all that God has given us between our ears? We need to learn. We need to think. We need to continue to grow with our minds that we will be all the more conformed to these virtues, these principles that he's laid out. We, we cannot leave out anything from our contemplation. We should continually dwell on these things. He's literally saying that we should ponder them without ceasing. Paul uses that a lot. He always calls us to do things without ceasing. And that means our minds will engage with the truth that not only sees Christ and the Word and the Gospel, but engages in creation. It rejects irrational thinking. It rejects nasty and fruitless and false thoughts. The mind of Christ seeks whatever is true in every aspect of life, from faith to science to relationships to public life to home life to business. The mind of Christ sets us to to think 
on what's dignified and, and noble and honorable, what's good and true and beautiful, what develops the character of God's people. The mind of Christ contemplates the things that make for just living and doing the right thing in all circumstances. The mind of Christ focuses on what is pure and undefiled, not tainted with evil. The mind of Christ contains thoughts that are commendable. And imagine, imagine as the church at Philippi began taking all of this in, taking all of this to heart, setting their minds on the things above, contemplating all these things that Paul is calling them to, as they begin to apply these virtues and to works, work all of this out. That, that's a process, right? We think about these things, and when we think about this, what happens? The more we set our minds on these things that Paul is calling us to, what happens? Well, in time, we start to work them out. No longer are they just embedded as thoughts in our minds, but they are in our hearts. They become our actions. They become our discussions. They become who we are. And when that happens, the gospel presses in on the world around us as we become more effective ambassadors of Christ. Now, the reality is that all of us probably hear this and say, thank you, Paul. (laughs) The sheer weight of this is crippling in our world, isn't it? The reality is that our world surrounds us with the extreme opposite of what we're being called to in each of these virtues in verse 8. Think about how all this sounds in the world. Here's how the world exhorts us, whether they use these words or not. It would say, finally, brothers, whatever is untrue, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is unlovely, whatever is uncommendable, if there is anything not morally excellent, if there is anything unworthy of praise... Think about these things. That's what the world is communicating to us day by day. I mean, if it wasn't for this kind of thinking, Twitter wouldn't even exist. That's that's 90% of the news media. It would shut down overnight. All of our politicians would have to go and get real jobs. (laughs) So Paul's command here is to, to set our minds in direct opposition to what is in the world and to what we're tempted by in our flesh and to what is put before us by the devil. It's a discipline of refusal to let our hearts and our minds and our bodies be taken away from from whatever is true and honorable and lovely and so forth. It's hearing those things of the world. It's, It's seeing what the world is calling us to and it's letting them hit our ears and then when they do that, that we have the minds to say, that's what the world says, but but Christ says otherwise. Christ calls me to a different principle. You remember when Jesus encountered Satan in the, the wilderness for 40 days? I know one of our children's Sunday school classes just looked at this very recently. What did, what did Jesus say? How did he respond? Every time Satan presented something to him, Jesus said, no, that's not right because God's Word says something else. That is opposed to the Word of God. That, brothers and sisters, is what it is to have the mind of Christ. It's not that we we lock ourselves and our children in a closet and pretend like bad things are and bad thinking in the world don't exist. 
or that it does exist and we might catch it, so we need to hide away from it. No, we need to engage it. We need to penetrate it with the truth, but we need to do so and unashamedly say, well, it is no surprise that you think that it's okay to lie, but God has commanded me not to lie and to always give way to the truth no matter what, so that that lie, no matter how big or small it is, is an affront to God. And so it's not running away, it's not hiding away, but it's engaging it with these very principles because we have the mind of Christ to think through everything according to God's Word. But here's the reality for all of us. Apart from Christ, it's impossible. If this becomes something we attempt to do as works of the flesh, it's impossible. More specifically, we we need this to be a work of the Holy Spirit within us. And the way the Holy Spirit works in His people is in and through His Word. I know you're shocked to hear me say this, but it is through the means of grace that all of this is possible. My small group always gives me a hard time. They say I have like three answers to every question that I want to hear from them. It's either Jesus, the Gospel, or the means of grace. And in many ways, it's true. Right? This is, this is how I know what is true and lovely and commendable and pure. I need God's Word. I need the Spirit of God. I need the, the Spirit who does not work within me apart from the Word, word of God. And, who, and the Word of God that does not work apart from the Spirit of God. Plain and simple, I need to have the Word of God in my heart. I need to read about it. I need to think about it. I need to hear it. The greatest danger in our our busy, increasingly post-literate world is that we make little or no effort to think God's thoughts after Him. We cannot be profoundly influenced by what we do not know. I cannot think about the things of God if I don't know the things of God. And so I must. So often I hear Christians tell me that they don't read. And every time I hear that, my heart breaks into a thousand pieces. And I run to the bookshelf and just want to pull things down and hand them over. Please, read. I hope at the very least you listen. Listen to sermons. Listen to books. Listen to the Bible. Brothers and sisters, we need to read and reread passages of the Bible. And in, in so doing, when we do that, we are hearing from the Spirit of God. That's how we hear the Spirit of God. It's not by sitting alone in a quiet room and and listening for a voice. We hear God through His Word. And when we do that, we can turn those ideas over in our minds. And we can pray about words or, or phrases for understanding, for application, for conviction, for practice. And in part, this is what it means to do what Paul calls us to in 2 Corinthians 10. He says to take every thought captive to obey Christ. To have the mind of Christ. To think the thoughts of Christ. I need the Word of God that I can be more like Christ. And I can do none other apart from Christ by grace through faith. If you were to identify the things that occupy your mind, what would you point to? What do you think about? More specifically, how do you think about it? Is the essence of Christ present? If you're a Christian, does your mind dwell on God's Word in a significant way? If not, 
Why not? What is so captivating our brain space that it keeps us from contemplating the greater things of God? Now listen, we're not talking about everyone here becoming uh, biblical scholars with seminary educations, but we're saying that God has given all of us minds to contemplate, to think about Him and His Word in every aspect of life. So when I think about being a parent, I think about it in light of God's Word. When I think about doing my work, I think about it in light of God's Word. When I think about my hobbies and and wanting to improve at those hobbies and get better at things, I think about it in light of God's Word. He is worthy that we would constantly have His Word and His worth on our minds. Now, friend, maybe you're not a believer here this morning, and I wonder what you think about. What do you contemplate throughout the day? I can't read your mind. I don't know everything that's in your heart, but I know one thing for sure. That thing that you're thinking about all the time, that thing that keeps you up at night, that occupies your brain space when you're standing in the shower, that rare moment when everything is quiet, I know that thing you're thinking about is the thing that you think is going, when it is made better, that is going to make you happier if it were different. We all think that. Money, materials, relationships, whatever it is. If only that thing were more the way that we want it to be, things would be better, we'd be happier. But you realize, you've lived long enough to know that once that thing gets to where you want it, it's not actually providing the happiness we thought it would. And you know how I know that about you? Because I'm tempted to do the same thing. And it is only by God's grace that I have any inkling to think otherwise. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit reminding me to trust God, to have the mind of Christ, that I would think any differently. It is only because I'm able to look to Christ who has lived the life, all these things I'm outlining, I fall far short of all of this, but it is only because Christ did not fall short in these things. That He fulfilled all of this on my behalf. It is only because Christ died on the cross to bear the weight of the wrath of God for my sins that I not have to, that I can have any hope. It is only by Christ living and dying and being buried and raised from the dead that I can have any hope that even though I fall far short of all of this, that Christ did not fall short at all. And in his not falling short at all, that I have hope and I have a future and I have an assurance that now that I am Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within me and I'm no longer obligated to sin in all of the ways that I once sinned before. That by the power and work of the Spirit that I am being sanctified, I'm being made more like Christ, that I might have more of the mind of Christ, that I can think the thoughts of Christ and do the will of Christ with my life. It is only by faith in Christ that we have true peace and true rest and that we find the source of true happiness. So what does all of it do? What's the point? Why set my mind on the things that we've talked about? It's the final point that Paul gives us this morning in verse 9. The mind of Christ brings about the peace of God. Read verse 9 with me again. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Here, Paul gives us an exhortation and 
a promise. First, his exhortation we've, we've talked about, so we won't camp out there, but he reminds them that in his time with them, and throughout this letter, and even more specifically here in this text, they've learned, they've received, they've witnessed the work of God in Paul's life. And remember last time we, we looked at Paul calling on the Philippians to imitate him. And, and what that means, and here again he's pointing at everything, and he says, look at me, look how it's all been worked out by God's grace. Have that in mind now. Practice these things. Do these things. We, we looked last time at where he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow the things that I'm doing that you might be more like Christ. Not because of me, but because of Christ. As he said back in chapter 2, Work them out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And and more specific to the context with verse 8, get these things into your minds. Man, this is these two verses is one of the best passages of Scripture that you could memorize. And every time your mind, every time your heart is drifting toward worldliness or sin or or anger, anything that you know is displeasing to God, you can quickly recall this in your mind and say, no, don't think about that. Set your mind. Talk to yourself. Say, self, set your mind on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. Think about those things. Paul's saying, listen, that's the first step. Set your minds on these things. You have that responsibility. The Holy Spirit will bring that to completion in you. But the great thing that God often does throughout the Scriptures is that He doesn't just give us a command to follow but he follows it with a promise. And that promise is a guarantee that if we take on our responsibility toward him, that he will do what Paul says here. Very simply, the peace of God will be with you. But the truth is, we've never truly learned these things or set our minds on these things until they've been lived out in our lives, right? Until we live them out on a daily basis. One commentator I was reading wrote this. He said, Noble thoughts are of little value unless they be translated into deeds. Living surpasses learning. Practice outshines priority. Living supersedes learning. So you see, I I love learning and I hope you love learning as well. God gave us these amazing computers between our ears to be able to do some amazing things our entire lives. But unless I put that into action... Unless I take those valuable things I know and use them to honor and glorify God, I'm not accomplishing anything. And and in fact, my life may be pretty rough. But I have a promise. I have a promise. If I follow after these things that God is calling me to here, His peace will abide in me through the work of the Holy Spirit while I contemplate Christ. And so all these things that he's mentioned, when they become reality, they become reality in the choices that I make. Every choice I make every day as I'm driving down the road, the choices I make and how I respond in that situation, or as I'm sitting at my desk at work, the things I do and don't do are affected by this. As I'm, as I'm pumping gas at the gas pump, let me, I was in California last week, it's $4 a gallon you think I wasn't tempted to have sinful thoughts. When I go to my wife's Christmas party for work, 
when I interact with customer service representatives, thousands of other interactions I have throughout my life, that our decisions would be shaped by contemplating the things of Christ, that I would have the mind of Christ. And in doing that, we see as we work this out that we have peace. We have peace. Our our tendency is to say, you know, God calls me to be truthful, but in this situation, it seems like it would be better if I wasn't. And we've all learned that hard lesson, haven't we? When we do that which isn't truthful, things get more difficult. It may be difficult to tell the truth in certain situations, but it's more difficult when we don't. It's funny, we teach our kids that right before we spank them, but we don't always follow through with that ourselves. But Paul's telling us, listen, to be truthful, to be honorable, to have noble thoughts, to do all of this brings peace. It may not be peace today, it may not be tomorrow, but you will have peace. If you're one of my non-Christian friends out there, you don't have the peace you seek because true peace only exists and can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this matter of our minds, this this amazingly, immensely complex mystery that resides between our temples is a matter of life and death. On the one hand, there must be a conscious rejection of all that is not consistent with the mind of Christ. But on the other hand, there must be this conscious taking on of exalted thoughts. It's this process that Paul constantly talks about of putting certain things off and putting other things on. And not only the thinking of them, but the practice of them, day by day, so that the mind of Christ shines out into a dark world through his people. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day, by his love and power controlling all I do and say. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have given us the capacity to learn, to understand, to think, to contemplate, to dwell. And, oh God, I pray that you would put it in the hearts of all of your people, that we would set ourselves to have minds that are captivated by the things of Christ, that we would have the minds of Christ. And as we have the minds of Christ, that our hearts would be transformed and that our deeds, our works as your people would be a reflection of these great things that we've looked at this morning. God, may we not have what you have given us in vain, but we, we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to not toss it all away in vain and frivolous pursuits but that we would set our minds to think, to think the thoughts of Christ, that they would be applied, that we would be more faithful ambassadors of Christ in every aspect of our lives. And we do pray, O oh God, for those here this morning who do not know and trust and love you. Would you, O oh God, would you send your spirit to awaken them from death and the grave that they might have new life? We pray, O God, you would do that, that you would be glorified, and that we would have the joy of rejoicing over new life in the Lord Jesus. And we ask you to do all of this in his holy and precious name. Amen.